The opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District or its employees. For more information about the Sewer District and its projects and programs, visit neorsd.org. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District presents Clean Water Works, a podcast that explores water, sewer, and stormwater issues that affect you and your community. Learn about the people, projects, and programs that are protecting your health and the environment here in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. You told me I text like a grandma, so I do you think I say I'm... that? And that is not disrespectful to grandmas. Grandmas are the best. I know my kids are annoyed with me because I spell everything out. Oh, yeah. Of course. Well, you know, punctuation's important. Yeah. It's a dying art. There's like, let's eat grandma. <laughs> let's eat comma grandma or let's eat grandma, period. Two totally different meanings. It's right. very true. And then when they send something back, I correct theirs. You print it out in red line. <laughs> red line it, send no, it back. No, I just I send it back with the asterisk and the correct spelling. <laughs> there you go. That's the way to do it. Welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah, welcome to welcome to I almost just said the sewer district. Welcome to the sewer district. <laughs> welcome to the sewer district. Been here much. Um, Thanks for having us. Clean water yes. works. Today's topic safety in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm particularly related to our industry, water industry. Right. We have today Manager of Health and Safety, Carla DeSantis, and Robin Halperin, the Manager of Environmental Health and Safety. Yeah, so how did you guys uh, get into the safety game? You grew up with a little hard hat? <laughs> Actually, um, I, I sort of fell backwards into it. So I... That's, That's not, not safe. safe. <laughs> yeah, right? That's but I was really wearing dangerous. a harness when it happened, so um, everything was fine. No. Okay. Um, I, want, I knew I always wanted to be in a career field that was helping people. Mm-hmm. I got a bachelor's degree in sociology. Or I'm sorry, bachelor's degree in psychology. Master's in organizational sociology. Dang. And, um, you know, I was standing in line at the unemployment office and my father suggested maybe I should maybe I should apply for a job at General Electric where he worked at um, just because it was you know good pay and you get health care benefits and whatnot so so I did and um, I went to work for GE um, and I was in the lighting division where we made um, coils and light bulbs and glass bulbs for like you know the glass Mm -hmm. Um, pretty hazardous stuff our health and safety program was very, very poor. Uh, uh, we had something in the neighborhood at 22% of our workforce there, which was only about 100 people, were getting seriously injured every wow. year. That's not good. Like, One out of five. Well, people. when you're working with yeah, molten glass and heavy machinery percentage. and things like that, it was, you know, it was pretty bad. So being part of the union, we had uh, worked with the local management to negotiate two full-time union-elected safety coordinator positions. So these individuals would be elected by the union. They would come off of their jobs, and they'd work up in the front office with the site's um, environmental health and safety staff. 
Um, so I ran for that job and I got it. Nice. And it was great because I really enjoyed it. I kind of, I just fell in love with it. And I'm like, this is what I've always wanted to do. I want to help people. And this is like my background. I grew up in manufacturing and the, and the plants and driving forklifts and doing all that kind of stuff. So I've been working in it ever since. I did a small stint in uh, consulting. Previous to coming to the district, I worked for 10 years for another utility um, that did steam and chilled water throughout mm-hmm. downtown Cleveland. So big boilers, lots of confined space under the city streets and things like that. So pretty hazardous stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that we do here, the highly hazardous work, like throughout collections and even in the plants, I was always already very familiar with, with that type of that type of work. So it was a good fit for me. Wow. So had you seen some pretty bad injuries and accidents before you even came? Yeah, there's been, um, I would say, probably three um, events that I have been close to. Um, None of them were fatalities, thank God. Uh, But they were events that were significant enough to make me question my career path. Like, I don't know if I can really do this. Mm -hmm. Because just being that close and knowing that, like people got seriously like life altering. Your life is never the same. You're in a wheelchair or you're, I had a horrific, horrific accident in a wine bottle manufacturing facility where a guy actually fell down on top of a wine bottle that had just come out of a forming. So it was essentially glass that was so hot. It was, it was barely cool enough to maintain its shape. And he sat on it. Oh. And he caught on fire, and it was just, it was just awful. And I had, uh, this was during my stint in consulting, and I had just been there the week before, and I had observed how he was doing this work, and I had uh, complained, not complained, but, you know, I had approached and and basically was like, you know, I, I really think that we could try to find a better way for you to do that. The exposure that you have if you slip and fall, I've been, and this guy was probably in his 60s and, oh, I've been doing it this way for, you know, 50 years. What do you know? I'm a young, I was probably, you know, mid 30s at the time. You know, they want a little girl coming around telling them, you know, what to do. And it was just the following week we heard that uh, he had been life lighted out of there. Oh, my goodness. I went through sort of an existential crisis after that, thinking, what could I have done to prevent that? Like, maybe I wasn't forceful enough. Maybe Mm -hmm. I should have approached him differently, you know. Um, But that actually solidified why I needed to continue to do what I'm doing. Um, You can only ever count the accidents that happen. Mm -hmm. You can't count the ones that you prevented. Mm -hmm. So... Every once in a great while, what keeps us going is that one or two people will call and say, you know what, something you told me to do actually prevented me from getting hurt. And it's happened like twice in 20 years to me. (laughs) But it's enough. You know, it's like playing golf, right? You only need to get a hole in one one time and you're going to keep playing the rest of your life. So, you know, that's that's what we that's what we do it for. I mean, that's what I do it for. Um, Robin, what groups do you oversee? Uh, So as the manager of environmental health and safety, I have two work groups that report to me, um, Carla and her health and safety team, and then uh, the environmental compliance team. So both of my teams are focused on compliance with the rules and regulations that govern the work that we do to make sure that everybody is safe and that we are protective of the environment. How did you get into this? Um, so I, I went to school and studied environmental science. That was my passion and my background. And I started working at the city of Cleveland in the 
uh, Division of Water as their environmental mm-hmm. manager. And very shortly after I started working there, I was offered a promotion that would um, put me in charge of both the environmental team and the health and safety team. And I knew absolutely nothing about health and safety. And um, I very quickly got a lesson in all things safety because at the Division of Water, they have a significant number of different crafts and activities that are ongoing any given day. There are always people in open excavations out in the street. There are welders, there are pipe fitters, there's just every type of craft that you could uh, imagine. And plus they have four uh, drinking water treatment plants that have chemicals and and um, confined spaces and all sorts of stuff. So we also had, I want to say, 18 different unions. So I really wow. got an education in, um, in not only what are the rules that we're supposed to be following to make sure that everybody's safe, but how do you get people to follow those rules without being the safety police because nobody wants the safety police telling and barking at them and writing them up and saying, you're doing this wrong. You know, there's a lot of people who have been doing this type of work for a long time and they don't suddenly want to be told that the way that they're doing it is wrong. So you don't approach it in that way. You say, well, maybe how could we do this differently? So because I want you to go home the same way that you came to work today. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I developed a, a passion for health and safety along with the environmental side. So I'm very fortunate to work here now with the sewer district and be able to guide and, and advise both those groups. What are the most common accidents and injuries that you see? I did a five-year um, analysis of the injuries that we've had. And, and we here at the district, we are far below the industry average in terms of um, which is a good thing that's a good thing right Right. but the injuries that are the worst the ones that either result in restricted days or lost time significant recovery time sometimes even um, you know physical therapy and injury are like muscle strains and tears Mm. and you know things that are ergonomic generally related to forceful um, exertion Mm -hmm. so heavy lifting there are some, you know, really tough jobs and people are lifting heavy stuff. And so the typical ergonomic injury, let's say it's a back strain or back injury in workers' compensation costs around $50,000. The indirect costs are actually double that or sometimes three times that. So indirect costs would be things like lost work, right? Having to train somebody to replace this person, um, you know, so there's work not getting done and productivity is down. Um, Worker morale is impacted every time there's an injury. Mm -hmm. Um, Those I would say are probably the most frequent. Um, For a while we were having not necessarily injuries, but incident wise, we were averaging about um, 25 or so motor vehicle accidents a year. And, you know, we have a very large fleet of vehicles, mm-hmm. and we drive hundreds of thousands of miles every year. And um, and they're not all little cars. No. They're not all little cars. No, no, they're not. Some, um, trucks, some of them yeah. are big VAC trucks and mm-hmm. 25,000 uh, pounds. Boats. Right, yeah. but trailers with boats and things like that. You know, we did kind of a, um, a campaign, and it was coordinated with um, where we put GPS – the, the organization made the decision to put GPS on the vehicles to try to monitor speed and things like that. We also did a defensive driver video 
Like, here's the kinds of things you should be doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and let's all be honest about it. It's getting kind of crazy out there on the roads, right? (laughs) So Uh we could only ever see that increasing. Well, this past year, we only had two preventable motor vehicle accidents. People found out that there was GPS in the vehicles. Speed monitor, you know, their their speed was being monitored. And Mm -hmm. I do think that... um, you know, people have a tendency to drive that vehicle the same way they might drive their own personal vehicle. It's important for people to keep in mind that a lot of these vehicles are going off road, right? They're pulling off into grass, they're pulling down and maybe right. a trail, right. things like that. It's not people necessarily getting into like regular road accidents. It's people backing up into right. a fire hydrant right, right. that they can't see in their mirrors, things like that. So, what's the most dangerous job at the sewer district? Collections. Yeah. Being in the tunnels? Say in, in the in the sewers. Yeah. Operation and Because of gases or mm-hmm. confined space. Well, space it's a confined space, space, and you have to think yeah. about there are drop shafts that are mm-hmm. 100-plus feet deep, mm-hmm. and you're being lowered down yeah. in a man basket, right? Um, we did have um, an incident occur. It was just before the Easterly Tunnel to Watering Pump Station went online. There was a big group of us, and we went down on one end, and we were walking all the way to the other end. And so they were lowering groups of us down the the main drop shaft, um, you know, two or three at a time. Everybody's kind of standing around at the bottom, and they're looking around, and they're taking pictures, you know, because it's gigantic down there. And I'm standing up against the wall, and I'm just watching them pull this basket up. And I see it start spinning, and I'm like, that's not good. (laughs) It banged into the corner, or like the edge of the, the mm-hmm. manhole, and one of the pieces of expanded metal popped off and started coming fl- falling Ooh. down. So, of course, I'm screaming, right? I'm like, get away, back up, back up. And this thing's coming down like this, like a feather. Sailing, huh? <laughs> because it's a big, you know, it's a piece of expanded metal, and it was like probably four foot by four foot, and it's floating down like this. And it came down, and it hit the... Uh, utility cart that was down there and it bounced and it made this just tremendous noise Um, but that really that could have killed somebody and I think to myself these are the kinds of things that's why I'm the person standing there looking up while everybody else is googling (laughs) taking pictures and I'm like yeah but that there's a downside to that safety part of it too because like I call them when you have your safety glasses on you never take them off like they never come off. My <laughs> husband hates it. I was he ask. can't do anything around the house. Where's I your was... safety glasses? Where's your hearing protection? Oh, you're wearing... He'll get on the mower when flip flops, and I'm like, really? You're not going right. to do that. <laughs> Our job is to assess the risk, mitigate what we can, to get it to an acceptable level. But there's going to be risk in everything we do. Robin, for the water field, for the wastewater field, are there specific hazards that people might not think about or know? Um, well, I'll focus on the, at the plants and, and the collection system. The most obvious hazard that comes to mind is the biological hazard of the raw wastewater that you are potentially interacting with uh, on a daily basis. So um, being aware of that and cognizant of that, that there are hazards in, in that water um, and protecting yourself with the proper personal protective equipment. But we also use chemicals in the treatment of our wastewater, and so we have large storage areas of chemicals and uh, protecting workers from um, any spills or 
even just the use and handling of those chemicals. We also have lots of confined spaces. Most of our wastewater tanks are a confined space. Um, yeah, I mean, we have, we have open, they're large open tanks that are full of water that you can fall into. The aeration tanks, okay, are, have bubbles blowing up in them. And what people don't realize is if you fall into that, you will not float because mm-hmm. of the bubbles, the aeration. So you will immediately sink. So when you, people come to our plants, they probably don't even really pay attention to this, but there are life preservers around all of these tanks Just for that case. specific reason. You won't float because there are bubbles in the water? Yeah, because the aeration, it's like boiling water. It's oh, just going to... Oh, pull you under hot. or something? It's, it's not, not hot, hot but, but it's... it's forceful movement of air. Uh-huh. You, you, have, you won't have buoyancy in that oh. because of the bubbles. Oh, some science. So don't fall in those don't tanks. Don't right. that out, Mike. No. You know, we have a lot of heavy equipment. Um, our guys out in in the collection system use extraordinarily large cranes, mobile cranes. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think I was getting around to the point of talking about a rescue in a confined space mm. that is 200 feet deep mm-hmm. is going to be a problem, even for professional firefighters. Yeah. You know, to, so we have to prepare them when they enter these um you know, highly hazardous situations to self-rescue and to have the equipment they may need to get themselves out. We do all the typical manufacturing-like type stuff, right? We have shops, we have welders, we have, um, you know, grinders and cutters and drill presses and all that kind of stuff. And those are the types of things that, if you're not real careful around, um, you can lose limbs. Two of our biggest hazards are actually housed at our southerly plant in the, in the renewable energy facility. So the incinerators are extraordinarily hazardous. Mm -hmm. And then we have a turbine over there, that um, electrical generation turbine. So those are are very hazardous pieces of equipment. You know, they're under pressure, a lot of Mm -hmm. pressure, steam, um, and something goes wrong. Um, It will go very, very wrong. I think we should talk about lab safety. The lab has the privilege and the honor of working both with uh, biological material. From, uh, they get raw samples from the plants um, and various different samples from, from the plants that they have to analyze on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Plus, they get to handle lots of different chemicals and handle that all carefully and not have any incidents or accidents or spills. But it is uh, takes a lot of extra care and training and knowledge and skill to be able to do what they do in the lab in a safe manner. Construction is another big um, kind of a hazard for, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about like the big, you know, um, storage tunnel construction. Mm-hmm. Like even at the plants, just renovations and things like that can can be problematic because it's it's non-routine. You're battling in between non-routine hazards that people aren't thinking of, and then the routine ones where complacency becomes a problem, where they're doing the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, and they start to like kind of not pay attention. Mm-hmm. We do have a tendency, I guess, as a human race to start like all sit staring at our phones and we're thinking about other things, mm. right? Like, oh, I got to remember to pick up milk on the way home or, um, you know, my kid called me a jerk this morning, you know, because mm. she's 13 and she's a jerk, <laughs> and, you know, or something like that. You know, we've, we've, these are the things that go on. We're just normal humans, mm-hmm. right? But those are the things that can distract you and those are the moments that, really where you have a wider opening for something bad to happen. Mm-hmm. If you're doing something extremely hazardous, you need to not be distracted like that. 
it really is a behavioral thing and something you have to work on culturally to ingrain in people. When there is an accident at one of our plants or, or something like that, what, uh, how do we handle it? So once the incident is done, how do we handle it? We always look at every incident as an opportunity for improvement, right? Um, we want people to report things to us that we call near misses, like somebody almost got hurt, but for a second here or an inch there, something bad could have happened. Those are our best opportunities to fix something before somebody actually gets hurt. We do what's called a five why analysis, and it's as simple as it sounds. Well, why did this happen? Well, why was that like that? Well, why did that, you know, so we can get down to the root cause. Either it was a hazard that hadn't previously been identified, the person didn't have the right equipment, um, they didn't have enough training. Let's say a piece of equipment did something it's not supposed to do. Now, why did this happen, Mm -hmm. right? And inevitably, you'll get down to, well, yes, we could have probably anticipated that this would have happened, but it hasn't happened before, and nobody was thinking about it. So that's an opportunity now for us to write. This is a a procedure that we would write Mm -hmm. and then train people on. This This is how you're going to do this task, X, Y, Z, from now on. We also... Um, do a lot with our personal protective equipment. So we are constantly looking to see what's out on the market, new on the market. Um, We have relationships with vendors where we can get in samples. We have, you know, we go to employees and we ask them to field test the samples for us to see if they like it, if it works well, does it hold up well, you know, that kind of stuff. So we're always looking to try to find, you know, just the right fit for the task, right? Mm. Did you list the five whys? I feel like we only got to one Well, it's just basically whys? asking why five times. Oh, it's not <laughs> like, five different words no. that begin with the letter Y? No. no. Okay. Never mind. I'll cut that part. It's basically <laughs> like, so, okay, so this person, uh, you know, they, they tripped over um, a, ru- a rug runner in the hallway and mm-hmm. banged their knee and they fell. Well, why did they trip over the rug runner? Well, because the rug runner had a curl up on the edge of it and it was a trip hazard well why was that there like that well because our uh, rug runner company brings us garbage rug runners well why do we let them provide us garbage rug runners well because they were the lowest bidder so the corrective action is we need to instruct them that we will no longer accept curled up rug runners or something of that nature. You know, that's a simple example. You just keep asking why until you get to what is the root cause. Just digging There's, down a little deeper. Right, mm-hmm. okay. exactly. Five. That's a good depth. Yeah. <laughs> we tried six, but it, six we just is got too lost. much. And we got too lost. Far. And six four just much. didn't get us anywhere. It's <laughs> <So. laughs> a secret number. I'm a desk worker now, but being on the field, there were like so many hazards all the yes. time, especially in water quality industrial surveillance. Opening well, manholes, mm-hmm. uh, electrofishing out on the yep. rivers. I mean, I remember getting lowered into a sewer with my hard hat and my um, uh, harness. harness on and my boots, and I had a full um, zip up on and... Like, directly behind me, there was, like, just this drop. The sewer just drops into, you know, a bigger sewer. Mm -hmm. And being like, oh, 
that's why you stay hooked on <laughs> to the tripod <laughs> so you don't slip and fall fall down <laughs> yeah and also so if you if i were for some reason if my gas meter wasn't working right and you know i something happened something happened that you, you could know, be retrieved they just we don't want to lose donna in a sewer. crank you back up yeah <laughs> They are self-retracting lifelines, so if you start to slip and fall, it'll catch you. It catches, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then they could flip a switch up top and just crank you out mm-hmm. if something happens that way. Right. So, you do air quality monitoring before you even open the manhole. Yep. Mm-hmm. You do air quality monitoring mm-hmm. after you open the manhole. You lower it down. Make sure it's not going off. Mm-hmm. Pull it back up. Look at it. And then you can go down. Field jobs add a whole new layer to this because it's an uncontrolled environment. Mm-hmm. Our field workers, we've, we've had a, a much higher focus on them in the last couple of years. Right now, it, a lot of it has to do with their safety and security, mm-hmm. um, simply because there are more threats out there now in the field. Being a witness to criminal activity or being threatened, mm-hmm. carjacking. We have had, you know, the last two years, we have had several reports of our um, SSMO crews um, being in the neighborhood of, of shootings. They've dug bullets out of the sides of our um, pump stations Mm. um, in certain areas. So, you know, this is a real concern uh, for them and for us. So we want to make sure that we're providing them with, you know, um, emergency information and how to deal with those kinds of things. Um, Dogs, you know, just Mm -hmm. dealing with um, animals in the field. Yeah. Are there any long-term health effects or health problems that have been found related to the work that we do no great it's not (laughs) actually probably probably the the long-term health effect is that it boosts your immune system to be working around it's good for you being in a kindergarten classroom there is supposedly the 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 wastewater flu that you got when you first start working Um, that's a real thing yeah. yeah And it's then, like, like a you shock never to get your sick. System. Yeah. yeah. When you when you first start having the exposure to the biologics, you know, I mean, this stuff does become airborne, but mm-hmm. it's nothing outside of what our immune system can't handle. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't encourage people to practice good hygiene and you know don't eat and smoke after you've just cleaned out a sludge line. Um, we spend a lot of time talking with people on you know. Uh, respiratory protection and making mm-hmm. sure that they're protecting themselves. And as far as the CDC is sharing with us, there are no recorded um, cases of anybody contracting any level of hepatitis from simply working at a wastewater treatment mm-hmm. facility. When we were doing the sampling for uh, that was supposed to help understand COVID-19 mm-hmm. in wastewater, were, was safety pulled into that conversation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked a lot about that. Um, we were um, asked to participate in um, a wider study um, that basically asked us to collect samples so that they could be tested for the genetic markers of the virus because they wanted to use that as a predictive measure of where the next outbreak might occur. Because you would see it first in wastewater before you would see it in cases present in, in sick the symptomatic, individual. Right, yeah. in symptomatic people. So... Um, I think that there was an initial, you know, right when COVID came out, like a lot of, we, none of us really kind of knew what was going on. And we followed the CDC recommendations and the, and the health department. And, you know, we, and I think, you know, overall, it's back to your earlier point about your immune system. I mean, like, 
we really had very low um, infection, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially among, in the in the plant in the uh, plants. Staff, yeah. yeah, I mean, by comparison to some other organizations, and I can't help but think that that has something to do. Like we have immune systems that were forged in raw sewage. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I thought was kind of cool when I first went to a wastewater treatment plant? Tell us, Mike. Lockout, tag out. Oh, boy. And why did you think that was sit, cool? I'm going to sit this part of the conversation out. Why? <laughs> oh, God, I've done like so it. much lockout, tag out training. So lockout, tag out is a, is a procedure that is written for each piece of equipment in how to safely lock out all the possible... Uh, moving parts and power sources to that piece of equipment so that work can be performed. And so that may mean that several different people need to lock out their piece or part of that um, before somebody can safely enter or do work, say, in a, in a let, let's take a, a, a primary settling tank. Um, you want to be able to lock out to make sure wastewater can't flow into that tank. You want to make sure that you've locked out any of the other sources. Um, because then when you have a person working in there, you don't want it to be suddenly flooded with water or have any yeah. of the other equipment moving um, that could jeopardize what that, that um, individual is doing in the tank. So, mm-hmm. you know, locking out an incinerator maybe is, is probably far more complex than locking out a primary settling tank. Um, so there are different procedures for each one of these. Did I you're actually pretty- putting physical physical locks yeah, actually, on pieces of equipment so that they can't, yeah. so that one person is so like responsible So think for about the switch, you know, like the power switch, mm-hmm. you're locking it, you're turning it off and you're locking it so that nobody could accidentally throw it into the on position or purposely throw it into the on position yeah. saying like, hey, I need to use this mm-hmm. um, because they may not know or be aware that, you know, 100 feet downstream, somebody's working in that tank that, and that's why that lock is there. Like my lockout tagout lock had my name and a picture of my face on it Mm -hmm. and i had a key and no one else had a key correct so if i was in a tank cleaning it or doing radiation scanning i would put my lock on one of the pieces of equipment to lock it out it's a way to kind of make sure that everybody has signed off and said yep it's good you can go in there and safely work and you also can't remove the locks until the work is complete and everybody's aware that the work is complete and that it's going to be returned to service how else have you been able to change safety culture in places where it's not necessarily something that people want to hear? I think one of the, the big improvements that we have made at the district is um, having a designated health and safety specialist at each one of our major facilities as the go-to person there to help advise and guide and is, is just a resource. And I think um, the way that they approach all of their customers, if you will, all of the folks that work at the plants, we treat them as our customers and we provide them with customer service. And I think building that relationship and that that rapport has really gone a long way to helping change safety culture. So we can do um, a risk assessment on something to see what the risk was before we put a corrective measure in place and what it is afterwards and use those as tools for measuring our, you know, the effectiveness of our health and safety management system. Whereas, you know, prior to putting this in place, really the only measurement or metric we were using was our injury rate, right? So not yes, that that isn't an, not a, super helpful. It's it's not because it's yeah. an after the fact. There's nothing yeah, you can yeah, do yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, um, what we call a, a lagging indicator. It's like, 
we're tracking it, but it's kind of after the fact. Mm-hmm. What we really want to move in the direction of is tracking these leading indicators. What are we doing to prevent that from happening, right? Mm-hmm. All of the safety committee meetings and the trainings and the corrective actions and the audit inspections where we find hazards and then we fix them, all of that stuff. That is a true indicator of the effort that an organization is putting into you know, preventing people from getting hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, the injury rate is going to go up and down like this. We can have a great year. We can have a bad year. That's never going to be a true tell of what your your really is, your effort that mm-hmm. you're putting in. Any more than like the science that say how many days was your last mm-hmm. accident? Like in Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or like in real life, I guess. There's yeah. one at every location, but they don't get used. Yeah. Um, you know, the industry, the health and safety industry is very, you know, and even, even OSHA and PERP have been very uh they frown upon organizations who do any kind of promotional um awareness campaign based on injury mm-hmm. reporting because if you're telling people hey mike if you and your department have no injuries this quarter at the end of the quarter we're oh. going to give you a pizza party well, people yeah. report it. then people right. don't want to yeah. report it because mm-hmm. nobody wants to be the guy that yeah. blew out the pizza party <laughs> uh, right? absolutely not wow. <laughs> right we all just want to go home in one piece right yep the same or better right than when we walk a little more times. money in your pocket right? <laughs> yeah there you go that's what i tell people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> yeah, Robin and Carla, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having us. us. Yeah. I hope you have a really safe drive home. Did you know eligible customers can save up to 40% on their sewer charges? Learn more about the Sewer District's cost-saving programs and use our discount calculator at neorsd.org save or call 216-881-8247. That's neorsd.org save or 216-881-8247. Clean Waterworks is produced by the Communications and Community Relations Department at the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Our music was composed and performed by G.S. Shrey. If you have a question or suggestion, or if you'd like to learn more about the Regional Sewer District, visit neorsd.org or call 216-881-8247.